because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, it's been a while. More on that at the end of the show, what I've had going on. Um, but these days, since I'm not committed to doing a new show every two weeks, when I have one, it's a really good guest. And today is, is no exception. You might remember a few months ago, I had on Toby Rice, the CEO of EQT, the, the largest natural gas producer. And he gave an amazing perspective on how much capability we have to produce natural gas that's being suppressed. And I really wanted somebody from the coal industry to talk about the coal side uh, as well. And the number one person I wanted is somebody I met almost 10 years ago now named Joe Kraft, I think universally regarded as like the leading coal executive in the United States, the CEO of Alliance Resource Partners. Um, and he, we were at a conference a couple months ago and he gave just an amazing speech about how much more the coal industry could do and how so much of today's rising prices is totally unnecessary and political. So I thought it would be great to hear from Joe firsthand and to get another insider account of what's really going on with this global energy crisis. So Joe Kraft, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here with you today. Great to, great to have you. So let's start off with just, so not all of the listeners are super um, conversant with energy markets. Like what's been happening with the coal market globally in US over the last year? Well, uh, you go back a year ago, uh, we were coming right out of the pandemic. So in 2020, uh, the energy markets you know, immediately uh, had a correction as the governments around the world were closing their economy. So we came from uh, going into 2020 with an expectation of a normal year. And then when the pandemic hit and the economy started to close, we lost about a third of our demand right off the bat. And then we started about uh, August of September of 20, trying to get back to pre-pandemic levels uh, as the economy started to open again. So in 21, uh, we were able to hit a stride. We still did not get back to pre-pandemic uh, levels. We were probably uh, uh, maybe 20% or 15% uh, less than pre-pandemic levels. Uh, going into 2022, uh, we continued to have issues with COVID uh, that disrupted our workforce. Uh, you had supply chain disruptions. So the general economy, supply chain disruptions, plus the pressure coming from policy that was trying to discourage uh, investments in fossil fuels, all led to some uh, headwinds on our ability to both uh, provide supply, yet demand continued to grow as the economy started wanting to get back to normal. So the demand for energy, uh, with the one exception being uh, airlines traveling internationally, pretty much came back to a level uh, or levels that were pre-pandemic. So as a result, we had some shortage of supply because there was uncertainty uh, with uh, uh, what the markets were going to do. Utilities weren't committing. We're primarily a, a thermal coal producer as opposed to a met coal producer. So I'm focusing. Uh, so met coal is metallurgical, more. just so, so people know. Yeah, I'm focusing more on thermal and the utility industry as opposed to met and the steel industry uh, in trying to answer your question just for clarity. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, so for the thermal markets, 
we had utilities saying we don't need your product. Uh, we feel like we're satis you know, satisfactorily covered for our demand projections and supply projections. But as it turned out towards the end of last year, they were woefully short because natural gas prices started rising at a level quite a bit higher than they anticipated. So in the US markets, uh, we, our primary competitor is natural gas as far as utilization of uh, coal uh, for electricity generation in America. So that shortage of supply because there were no commitments uh, by the utilities, not because we couldn't produce it. Had the utilities wanted that coal, we could have produced it. We had plenty of embedded capacity because as I mentioned earlier, we had all this ex excess capacity prior to COVID. Uh, it's still embedded, it's still there. The only thing that we would lack really are people and the people, uh, and then you had the, with the people issue, you had the jobs and the, this uh, trend that we've seen over the last year where we have fewer and fewer workers that wanna participate in the workforce. And that's affected everyone in the industrial space, transportation space, our suppliers, us, I mean, it's just across the board. It's not just the service sector. Uh, we all are in industry are all uh, have a shortage of uh, qualified workers that want to work like they did prior to the you know pandemic. So there's a multiple of factors, uh, but primarily what's happening in the market, the markets are short of uh, product. Therefore, demand still is pretty consistent. And uh, that shortage of supply is resulting in higher prices. So inflation is pretty rampant everywhere, uh, but uh, we're seeing it both on the cost side, but we're also benefiting on the revenue side uh, because our product prices, we haven't seen prices this high in the history of you know, my lifetime. I, I got started with the energy crisis of the 70s. So I've been part of the, of the coal industry pretty much since it uh, since the nation returned to coal back in the early 1970s. And this is by far the most robust pricing environment we've ever seen. Most recently, that's related to the, the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. But even prior to that, the pricing has been at levels we haven't seen. And so, so can you quantify that in terms of uh, what, like you, what the prices were before compared to now? Yeah, so if you look uh, going into 2021, you know, you know, there's two different markets. So you had an Eastern market that's a higher BTU coal and those prices uh, were low 40s uh, per ton. We had the uh, Illinois Basin higher sulfur coals that are lower cost mines uh, that are, and I'm talking Eastern, you know, those prices were mid thirties. Uh, you have Powell River Basin, which is a totally different product. And those prices were high teens or around 10 or 11. Uh, by the end of the year, all those prices were double or triple. Wow. And right now, it's even better than that because of the better than that, higher than better, that. Better, yeah, better than that, depending <laughs> on the. And yeah. you know, one thing that's interesting about energy industry, I find, is that you know most people in the energy industry, obviously, on a short-term basis, you benefit if there are shortages. But generally, energy executives advocate policies that lead to long-term stable prices versus just wanting these shortages and feast and famine type dynamics. That's exactly right. And that's, I think that's the point that you led into is as we look at the markets today, 
they are more short-term focused because our customers have been very short-term uh, focused in their buying habits. And that's truly, uh, a, it's, it's some of it's ESG pressure, some of it's because of their expectation for natural gas prices. Uh, there's definitely pressure uh, from our customers to, to want to reduce uh, their dependence on coal. And therefore, there's an unwillingness, there has been an unwillingness to enter into longer term contracts. We're starting to see that change a little bit from those customers that uh, want long term security, that have power plants that they uh, expect to run beyond uh, 2030. And they understand the health of, a, of the supply chain is important for them and that, uh, that they do need to start believing in uh, giving us long-term commitments so that we can be there for them instead of relying on just short-term commitments that, that make it very, very hard for the supply chain to be available uh, if there's no price signals or contractual commitments that suggest that uh, our customers want us to be there for them. So I want to ask in a minute about the international market, but just with your market, where do you see a role of government in terms of because you were mentioning specifically utilities being short term, you mentioned some connection to ESG, but is there is there a governmental component here that's that's driving that? Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, so the Biden administration, in contrast to the Trump administration, Trump administration believed in energy dominance uh, for America. They believed he believed in uh, energy independence. He believed in diversity, all of the above. Uh, so uh, he wanted to encourage low-cost energy uh, to allow manufacturing to flourish in the United States. Biden comes in and immediately reverses so many of the energy policies that the Trump administration had implemented. Keystone Pipeline, as an example, re-entering the Paris Accord. Uh, there are multiple things uh, that you could go through where uh, the Biden administration immediately wanted to revert back to the Obama policies, uh, which were to over-regulate uh, the, the fossil fuel industry and coal in particular, uh, to try to reduce uh, the uh, production, the emissions uh, from coal plants. Uh, Biden come in, came in with his energy policy to advocate uh, a plan to uh, effectively eliminate the coal industry by 2035, with some acceleration to the year 2030. So he attempted through policy to suggest those dates in transition and trying to encourage the utility industry to start thinking about diversifying to other products to meet those timetables. There are other regulations that were in place that encouraged those utilities to speed up earlier than that. There was uh, one particular bill that's uh, dealing with the uh, uh, residual waste that had a 2023 timetable. There's another one that was a 2028 timetable, but uh, there was pressure with a definition of transition uh, to 2030, 2035, but the political rhetoric wanted to move faster than that. If you would mm -hmm. go back to the democratic uh, primary uh, for president and people on the stage and they were talking about, you know, trying to get to uh, what were their targets on CO2, and they started at 2050. And then the next guy would say, well, I want 2040. Next guy, <laughs> I want 20. You know, they were trying to just right there on the stage without 
any semblance at all of factoring in how do you get from where we are today to where they wanted to go. None of that played into any of these policy decisions. And that's part of our challenge because now, even though those targets are out there, guess what else they did? They immediately go to the financial institutions and say, don't lend to the fossil fuel industry. So how does that work? I mean, like, do they say that directly or is it just a consequence of the rhetoric? Like, what's the mechanism there? They say it directly. Like how? Like they call up Jamie Dimon or something like that? So you've got essentially those banks that are regulated by the federal government. So uh, the, the, those regulators will basically say, uh, you know, we're going to evaluate your loan practices so that you've got soundness of, of your banks. And oh, by the way, if you lend to fossil fuel companies, then we're going to look at that, that, you're, you, you, that you, uh, you need to reduce those in order to protect, you know, the soundness of your bank. In other words, they were trying to place a belief that if they loan money to a fossil fuel company, that that's a risky loan because of policies that the Biden administration was advocating. So which, which regulators uh, would this be? Like so this would be the Federal Reserve or the uh, OCC, which is the other bank regulator. There's two different regulators at the federal level, uh, depending on what your bank charter is. So is this because because the narrative I usually hear is just focused on ESG, which I don't think of as private for various reasons in a lot of ways. But usually here, just oh, the ESG people want to. But what you're saying is now this actual administration is is dictating this, and they're they're, you know, they're threatening. Yeah, they are putting pressure on the Federal Reserve to implement these policies. So there's a couple of vacancies right now, and there's a debate with one of the members that they're trying to uh, uh, get uh, you know, Senate confirmation of, and she's on record of basically saying Fed policy should be very uh, instrumental in uh, things outside just uh, what their typical job is to make sure that the lending practices of the banks are are following the proper regulations and the, the proper uh, safety channels for the set safety and soundness of the banks, uh, which gets into the whole uh, fossil fuel issue. So just trying to understand what's causing the, the near-term prices. So is the lack of, how does the lack of investment factor into the near-term prices? Because I think you also said like you have a lot of capacity. So I, I can see how the utilities decision is factoring into that, but how is, how is the lack of investment factoring into the the okay, recent price uh, first factor is we need to have customers that show that they want the product and they're willing to contract for the product. Mm-hmm. And so having that demand as an investor, uh, you know, I need to know that if I produce the product, somebody wants to buy the product. And if our customers basically say, I may need it, but I'm not going to contract for it then we have decisions to make as to how much capacity, how many people we want to hire, how much we want to invest to make sure that we're there for the market uh, that's demanding our product. So that's the first issue. Then the second issue is we need financing. So uh, historically, you know, most companies in America could be, you know, finance uh, their company at, uh, you know, 50% debt, 50% equity. Uh, or if you look at it, a coverage ratio, it would be four to one of your cash flow. 
the banking industry on the coal industry for the last eight years have been two to one. Uh, almost now, it's really hard to get banks to step up and lend anything back to the ESG and the pressure they're getting uh, from the administration. So as you think about bringing on new production, uh, you know, it's unlikely that you'll see any new coal mines built uh, unless there's a total shift in philosophy uh, mm -hmm. relative to this issue. Because for large investments, you need, you know, 100 to $200 million. And it's very difficult to find anyone that would lend you that money in this market due to the ESG uh, concerns. Now, as far as just maintaining your oper operations, we're just having to constantly pay down the debt that was acceptable, was available to us five years ago, seven years ago because the concern, can we replace that? Mm. Uh, we have a concern as to whether there'll be a market there for us. Uh, we have the strongest balance sheet in the in industry. And I feel pretty confident because of our other investments that we will get financing, but it's not easy. Uh, so and that's, it, uh, that's just for you. I mean, you're, I think, in a almost universally acknowledged as being in a much stronger financial position than other. I mean, obviously there've been many, many coal bankruptcies. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. So maybe is this an accurate summary? It seems like the government is, is doing two things. They're telling customers not to buy your product or not to commit to buying your product. And it's a long-term buying thing. And then they're also telling investors not to invest in the projects to produce the product. Uh, right? I think that's fair. Yeah. That has been the case. Uh, over the last several years. Uh, and, and, and then the like, why are the policy, prices I'd say more from a democratic uh, 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 administrative policy, not the Trump policy. I mean, one thing that just seems woefully underappreciated, I think by Democrats and even by some Republicans is just how having low prices over term requires long-term commitments and long-term investments. And you see with oil prices now, people are asking me like, what can we do now that will make oil prices go way down. And I'm like, that's not how it works. The way it works is they're low when you can do cost-effective things over time. Uh, like you can sign long-term contracts, you can come up with these efficient production arrangements knowing that you'll get a payoff. And so we're seeing the consequence of this, this short-term thinking, but I, I like that's I think part of what you're highlighting is that it requires these long-term commitments. And when you destroy those, then you see the prices go up and there's not much you can do about it in the moment. Right, not in the short term. And all of these energy type projects are long-term commitments. I mean, most utilities build a plant and it's 50 years. I mean, all these things are typically long-term. If you're gonna build a pipeline, you're gonna want that pipeline to, to be in existence for 30 plus years. So when you think about payout projects in the energy space at scale, the large scale, uh, in order to provide the amount of energy that is needed uh, to have the, what we call a normal economy, uh, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of long-term commitment. So much of our movement to renewables, I mean, we're very small scale with renewables. And the biggest issue I hear from my customers at the operating level with the pressure that they've got to replace the coal plants or the new plants is what am I gonna replace it with? And people would suggest, well, replace it with the renewables. And then they talk about, well, unfortunately, we can't store electricity beyond a certain amount of time, and therefore, we cannot give you reliable, resilient electricity. 
And uh, people just don't understand that uh, or have not been able to understand that. And I think that uh, with what's going on in Europe, uh, with Russia and Ukraine, maybe that's a major uh, wake-up call for people that have just taken energy for granted to realize that uh, I need to be a little bit more thoughtful about my own national security, my own reliability for my people, my own ability to provide low-cost energy uh, for my citizens that I just can't take it for granted, assuming that my counterparty needs to have me and will be reasonable uh, because we're seeing with what's happened with Russia, Ukraine, Germany, Europe, that uh, obviously uh, that was a, a bad decision to have that reliance. And yeah. I want to I get in depth in that in a minute, but I want to ask one more question about the coal industry in particular, which is what what are the reforms that should happen? You know, I think, you know, I work with a lot of elected officials. I'm working on, you know, an energy freedom platform for 2022. Uh, so I'm interested in your perspective. Like what, what do you think are the key reforms that could undo this damage and really, you know, unleash the, all American energy industries to be much more productive and cost-effective? Well, I think first it's, you know, we need to set realistic expectations as to where technology is. Once we do that, then we can set the parameters of when uh, the existing facilities, how long they should operate and exactly how the transition is going to occur from moving from a reliance on a nuclear plant or a coal plant, for example, and then what are we gonna replace it with in a timely manner to where there's no disruptions so that people can make the investment. So I can make an investment that, that uh, is going to be there for what the nation needs. I had a conversation with one of the cabinet members uh, just recently, and he admitted that uh, we're gonna need coal for decades to 2030, 2040, 2050. And I just encouraged him to well, make sure that's known. Because yeah, that's not known at, at all. People don't, don't think that. we need it. They don't even think we need it now. And so I think we've got to have first responsibility to leaders define reality. And we need to define that we're going to have to rely on coal. If you're looking at it from a negative perspective of saying, well, I, I don't want coal to, have, you know, I want coal plants to close. They need to close in a responsible way and on a timely basis to where there is a transition that allows for us to provide the, the electricity necessary to support the industrial base. When you look at what our market share is today, most of it's concentrated in about nine different states where there's nine states that have more than 40% of their generation is coal. And the reason for that is they are heavily industrialized states that depend on low cost energy. And coal is still for plants that are already in existence, it's the lowest cost form of energy uh, that those states can rely on to provide uh, that low-cost power and reliable power, resilient power for these manufacturing facilities that need uh, low-cost power 24-7. I- uh, those states need to step up and say to the federal government, what size does not fit all? You know, if we're going to be dependent on coal for 20 to 30% of our energy, you all need to recognize that and allow us to be 40, 50, 60% uh, 
And over time, we will transition, but you got to give us time to transition. Every time, I mean, I've been in the business since the 1970s, every bill, every regulation, historically, up until Obama, they would come to industry and say, what's a reasonable time period to transition mm. on different pollutants that we want to eliminate? And industry would work together so that they had time with innovation and technology to solve the issue. Obama and now Biden, they don't really want to think in those terms. They want to think in terms of, I'll just demand that you do this and it'll just happen overnight because I'm sure they've got people in the solar and wind industry saying we can do this overnight. When in reality, they can't. Yeah. So I want to run something by you. So I like the idea in general of being realistic about energy, but I think counting on politicians to do that seems very unrealistic. And in part, because you always have these people who can seem credible and they'll just say, oh no, we can do a solar wind. I just made a model. Look, I just made a model and it's from Princeton and it's great. And Um, so my thought is like, I like policies that like my, my basic view is that if the government is monopolizing electricity, it should have requirements to do the most cost-effective thing. Like that, that sh- there should be rules around that. And I think, you know, the number one thing is you need to stop rewarding unreliability and stop privileging it. And I think the ba- my basic solution to that is everyone should be required to sell reliable electricity. And that doesn't mean you can't use solar and wind, but you have to, if you can do solar and wind and batteries, you can make them a black box and you can sell reliable electricity. But I think as long as some people can sell unreliable electricity, and others have to sell reliable, the unreliables are always going to parasite off the reliables and take advantage um, of the system. So like, I, I'm very in favor of reforms that just make it clear, like, hey, you have to do the most cost-effective thing and you have to deliver. If you're a generator of electricity, you have to generate electricity on demand for some specific purpose. It can't just be you randomly feed it in whenever you feel like it and everyone else has to pay for that. I think both of us are saying we're looking at it practically. And mm-hmm. I think you raise a very valid point. Our politicians tend to not even think it through. Uh, they're not really looking for a solution. They're just providing a political response. And so as I think about it and I talk to other people and I try to sound these alarm bells as to what it means to our freedom, what it remains to our reliable energy, what it, uh, remain, what it means to create, you know, maintain jobs and, and be responsible, the conclusion usually comes back that it's going to take a major emergency to wake up these politicians and the people so that the politicians will change. And well, we, we got one, we sort of have one now. Happened in uh, Texas a year ago, and it lasted about three weeks. Yeah, but so, so here's the thing about that. I think there's something to that, obviously, but the problem with so, my view is the way to do that is point out the, like, in my view, there's all, there was already an emergency before Texas in that you had all these places using solar and wind that had higher prices. And that, that itself should be an alarm bell and certain reliability challenges in certain places. So my view is you put a magnifying glass on the existing problems and you make them into an emergency. You like draw attention to them. Cause if you wait for an emergency, A, then something really bad happens, but B, even when, an, even when something bad happens, people don't, change their ideas automatically. So you look at Texas, there's a whole cottage industry of people who say, oh yeah, nothing, Texas proves nothing wrong about wind. In fact, it's fossil fuels that failed. I mean, this is, you know, both of us, I think, think this is a totally crazy narrative um, because we see plenty of other grids that deal with the exact same situation with fossil fuels 
whereas nobody deals with having a cold snap with just renewables. So it's a matter of the policies not having enough reliable power plants, not investing enough in, in resilience. Um, but it's, 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 it's notable that, A, yeah, that the attention faded quickly, but also there became this narrative. Like if you look at the federal government's narrative, they just have a total like pro solar and wind um, narrative. But that said, I think we do have a situation where there is a crisis that's not primarily us, uh, but is very revealing and is on everyone's mind. So let's let's talk about this. Uh, I mean, we probably have similar thoughts, but I'm very interested in, yeah, what's your take on the Ukraine-Russia situation in particular as it relates to energy? Well, uh, you know, we know that Germany uh, made a decision to put its fate in the hands of Russia as it comes to their energy uh, dependency with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, and basically their policies over the last dozen or so years relative to closing down nuclear plants, closing down coal plants, uh, being more dependent on uh, renewables. And then they were, because renewables uh, are not reliable, they have to have the gas back up. And that, that was their, uh, their energy policy. Uh, they trusted that the Russians, who they depended on for more than 40% of their natural gas, you know, would be a good trading partner and they would not use energy as a weapon. Uh, we now see that Russia has used uh, energy as a weapon uh, through the conflict uh, with Ukraine. And now that has all of a sudden uh, established a reality for the, the European Union and uh, those around the world that cherish freedom that we do in fact need to recognize that people will position themselves to take advantage of their leverage for their personal objectives that may be different than what their trading objectives would be. And we're seeing that with Russia and how the response has been to so many uh, freedom seekers, freedom countries to condemn uh, Putin's attack, his invasion uh, on Ukraine. And the support the Ukrainian people are getting, uh, maybe more from a, a morale standpoint than troops on the ground, obviously. Uh, but, you know, we are uh, seeing a change that is being discussed, you know, within Europe because of the insecurity, uh, national insecurity they have because they put themselves at, in this vulnerable state because of the policies they took on energy. Uh, when you think in terms of NATO coming together and uh, trying to determine how they can respond to Russia, uh, what is the, the global response going to be? Uh, sanctions came to the top of the list. Even with sanctions being uh, uh, pretty specific, you know, there was still a hesitancy from the European nations as well as the United States uh, to put any sanctions on energy. And the reason is because Russia is a major player in oil, gas, and coal in providing 
the energy needs of many of these countries, including the United States, uh, that we import uh, oil uh, to our country from Russia. Uh, Europe, I've talked about, is very dependent not only for oil, gas, but also coal for even the coal that they continue to use uh, from Russia. There's many other countries uh, where that depend on uh, coal uh, from Russia uh, for their particular needs. But we're seeing a reset and that's shown in the markets where, you know, we're seeing prices for coal uh, yesterday go up to $400 a ton. I talked to you earlier. That's 10 times what you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And we're seeing natural gas. Uh, Today, natural gas in Europe is trading at the equivalent of like $360 a barrel of oil. We're seeing oil uh, trade at $100, you know, but there's still the only thing that's keeping it, you know, it's going to 115. The only thing that's keeping it from going higher, in my view, is this discussion about potentially a deal with Iran uh, on the uh, nuclear deal to revive that, that allows them to bring more volume onto the market. Oh my but, God. Uh, but we're seeing, we're definitely seeing uh, a shift. Uh, so we had the prime minister or the chancellor of uh, Germany make a statement yesterday that this, you know, we're going to have to change our policies and we're going to have to uh, diversify our supply. We can't rely on Russia because of what they've done. So we've got to start thinking about putting a stall on the plant, the coal plants that we had uh, previously committed to close. We're going to have to continue to you know, rely on those and extend the termination date. Uh, we're going to have to start looking for new partners for natural gas. We're going to have to start accelerating uh, more LNG terminals for Europe and specifically to Germany so that they've got adequate gas supply because they don't believe they can rely on Russia. We've seen a lot of companies, even though there haven't been sanctions by governments on energy, uh, we've seen a lot of the major oil companies decide to pull out of Russia and the investments they've had take huge uh, write-offs. Uh, because of uh, their uh, concern about their own people being in that country. But more importantly, I think they're uh, basically sending a signal that that uh, uh, you're not a reliable uh, partner. We're seeing gas, you know, oil and gas, even though they're not sanctions, nobody will take it from Russia. They're offering significant discounts to try to move their oil and they can't move it because there's so many of the buyers are saying, I can't condone what they've done. I can't allow us to continue to pay them for this oil so that that we're funding their government so that they can uh, uh, do what they're doing to the people of Ukraine. If they do to the people what they're doing to Ukraine, what's next? What is their real purpose here? What is the objective? And there's no real objective that uh, other than uh, reasons that don't seem logical, (laughs) as to what uh, Putin's ultimate goals are that uh, are a threat to, uh, to the free world. I mean, imagine, imagine, I think it's great that we're seeing these kinds of, of sanctions. I don't think it's great that it, I mean, there's a lot of reason to do this before. It's like, I mean, he was a vicious dictator before. That wasn't like a secret. Um, so I think we should have been doing a lot of this stuff before. That's good to see. But imagine how much more consistently we could do it. And in particular, Europe could do it if we actually had a long-term policy of thinking about energy. I mean, all of this was, 
like it's people think it's fun to be right. It's not that fun to be right about these things. Like this was, and it was so obvious, right? There was just, it's all, the, all these policies were based on the fallacy that unreliable solar and wind could rapidly replace fossil fuels. So the idea is, oh, well, we're going to stop producing fossil fuels, but we'll be fine because solar and wind will come to the rescue. And that never made any sense. There was no evidence of it actually happening. It was just, we have this fantasy then because we like the idea of getting our energy from the sunlight and wind gusts and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you stop producing it. You become dependent on hostile people. Guess what? You're not secure. Like it's the most obvious thing. I'm sure you had talked about this. I had talked about this. And it's, and now we're just seeing it so concretely where it's like literally this, you're empowering this aggressor and leading to a greater chance of its world domination. So I think like, I'm glad we're responding now, but I think we should also respond by saying, let's have a long-term way of thinking about this that takes into account these things. Well, we had to do that in the 1970s. I think we're going to have mm -hmm. to do it again. Uh, there's no question in my mind that electricity prices are going to be substantially higher than they were in January before the invasion. We are already suffering from inflation that is creating all kinds of uh, pressure on different economies and the sadness it's providing to those people that, uh, that don't have the resources to, to live day to day uh, with energy, uh, poverty, et cetera. Uh, so it's a, it's a critical issue. Uh, I think that we've got to wake up and recognize that we need to depend on those that have our best interest at heart. And Russia does not have the best interest at heart for the European nations and uh, other parts of the world. And I don't think the solution is to turn to China because that's really the solution. You know, so many say, well, let's just go renewables and speed up to renewables. Well, where, what, what country do you get the materials for solar panels and so many of the other factors. And of course you've got that risk with China and Taiwan and, yeah, yeah, and all the semiconductors mm -hmm. in the world in Taiwan. I mean, it's exactly. yeah. This should really. I hope. I hope as a proximate consequence, we wake up to China because China is a lot scarier to me than Russia in the long term in terms of just stealing all of our intellectual property and all these different kinds of things. Yeah, and and there's and the amount of cravenness by U.S. companies in glorifying China, participating in their propaganda. Etc. And you just okay. Now we see what happens when you cut off natural gas. What happens if you cut off the elements involved in almost all modern technology, which we decided, oh, we're going to be green, so we're not going to mine them. We're just going to use them from China. Like that needs to be rethought right now. And this should definitely be like above all a wake up call about China. I mean, they already use their you know they they already use their supply chain to threaten other countries in Asia. Obviously, they will do it to us when it is opportune. And that is really scary. And, you know, they want to take over Taiwan and Taiwan has like all the leading semiconductor manufacturing in the world. Exactly. And from what I've heard, I hope this is true, but I've heard that like Taiwan, part of its defense is they will destroy those factories before letting China. And then you talk about the whole world depending on this stuff. So like, yeah, it's a wake up call to have real long-term thinking about, instead of just saying, oh, let's use solar wind. That sounds nice. Let's outlaw fossil fuels. I'm sure it'll work okay. Yeah. When you look, go back and look at some of these trends, uh, most recently, a lot of people have reduced their uh, economic trade relations with Russia because of the way they've 
handled situations in the Middle East and sort of signaled uh, their ability to rely, but they've gone to China. And so many of our problems on the fossil fuel area from a CEO leadership role and what we see with the banks not funding fossil fuels or Larry Fink talking about abandoning or universities trying to uh, divest is because they just look at China as being a trade partner that's going to be there for us. And if they <laughs> <Yeah>. can understand <laughs> that when you decide that not to fund fossil fuels in America, I mean, you're, you're basically making a strong statement that you want to be dependent on China. That's what I think. Yeah. Uh, um, as we wrap up, uh, I know uh, you might have covered this, but I want to make sure you get to cover it more if you want to. I know you're very passionate about the connection between energy policy and freedom. So I just want to give you the opportunity to say anything additional you have to say about that. Well, uh, again, the reason that I'm still working at the ripe old age of 71 uh, <laughs> is because I do, I am very passionate about uh, the important role that uh, energy plays in our freedom and the freedom of every country around the world. I had the pleasure of uh, meeting very, you know, a lot of ambassadors uh, while my wife was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And those countries that cherish freedom would be, you know, they would communicate with me the reason that they take the stand they take and the risk they take to vote with America is because they want and they cherish their freedom. And I think watching Ukraine and the way they fight for their freedom, you know, should be an inspiration for us. It's an inspiration for those that didn't have freedom. You know, one ambassador in particular grew up in a, a communist country and their country today is free. And, uh, you know, they made huge sacrifices uh, to vote along with Americans because Russia would use energy as a weapon. And these, these are real things that are going on. And so, again, I've been trying my hardest every time I have a chance to talk that I'm not trying to talk about, you know, just being a coal guy, I'm talking about freedom. And then, you know, I'm willing to, to divest if there's a better option, if there's a better alternative. Our company's in the oil and gas business uh, because we could see that uh, there's more dependence uh, in the future on gas than there has been on coal. And I can adjust to that as long as it's practical and it's achievable and it's realistic so that we can continue to be energy secure, energy independent, allow for uh, reliability uh, for our uh, manufacturing uh, uh, producers, consumers. I mean, I'm, I just want this country to be the best it can be. I've been blessed uh, to be in a position to help, uh, but I've got a feeling obligation uh, to try to, you know, to, to sound the alarm, which is what you were saying a few minutes ago. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not doing it for any other reason than to say for America, wake up, we understand energy, we understand the policies and we understand that we're gonna wake up and lose our freedom if we don't pay attention to the fundamentals. And unfortunately, Ukraine's going through and, and is the poster child right now to be the example uh, for us 
that we need to wake up and say, we don't want that to happen to us. We don't want it to happen to any other country. And we want to stand up and fight for the freedom we have and cherish and what America's done ever since I've been born. I mean, we've always been freedom seekers around the world and democracy. And, and we need to continue that. We have a responsibility uh, to do that. And uh, if we don't have low cost energy, we will not have the wealth that this country has that allows us to tackle all the problems we've got. It is only with this wealth and with only our creativity, our innovation and our desire for our country to be strong that we can solve problems. Everyone wants America to be the leader in the world. There's only one American dream and uh, we need to fight for it. It's not just going to happen. We got to fight for it. We got to protect it. We got to work together. We got to join United. Uh, One of the moments of the uh, State of the Union address that as I read the different uh, uh, different pundits explained their, you know, the various moments that they liked out of the uh, State of the Union address was when the chambers all stood up and said, USA, USA, uh, we need to do that, but we've got to do it united. We got to recognize, yes, climate's an issue. Yes, emissions are an issue, but we're not going to have to worry about 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if we don't take care of today. And today requires us to pull together and acknowledge the fact that uh, there's no there's no substitute for fossil fuels to provide that low cost energy and the quality of life that we have that's, that's helped so many millions and millions and millions of people around the world. So that's what I'm fighting for. I know that's what you're fighting for. And uh, uh, thank you for giving me a platform to be able to say it one more time. Well, and so just one final comment on that. I mean, I always want to highlight when executives speak out out of conviction. I have a, like, I mean, my view is life is not worth living if you can't say what you think. Like to me, that's just, I never want a job where I can't say what I think, but I get it when people are poor or like they're struggling and they feel like if I say what I think, you know, I'm going to get in trouble. But my view for executives is, you know, once you're a CEO of a company for a little while, even if they're not as successful as you have been, like you're pretty much independently wealthy. And like once you're independently wealthy, there is no excuse for not saying the right things. And so I really admire the executives who do say the right things, who say what they believe, because otherwise what's happening, it's not like you need it for your family. And it's really a status thing. It's like, oh, I don't want to get criticized at cocktail parties. I don't want to be called this. And like these issues are too important to think about things like that. So I'm grateful to you for standing up. And I want to highlight that to encourage others to stand up as as well, particularly if you're in a financial position where you like, you don't need to worry about losing your job and not being able to feed your kids. So say the right thing, because we need more and more, like me saying it is important, but it's also really important for the executives to say, to say, I'm in the industry. This is the reality. This is what I think and not sugarcoat it and say, oh yeah, of course we can transition rapidly to renewables. That's great. I love that. Praise me. Here, here. <laughs> All right, Joe. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining me and uh, look forward to seeing you sometime in person. All right. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Thanks, thanks again to Joe Kraft for joining me. Uh, it's been a while since I've interviewed someone for Power Hour. I'm glad to do it. I've got a really good one coming up as well. Uh, Robert Zubrin, who's been on the show, I think twice before. 
Oh, I think we talked once about mariculture, which is like, uh, you know, basically farming the oceans, making the oceans bloom. And we've also talked about his book, Merchants of Despair, that I'm a really big fan of. He has a new book he's been working on on nuclear that I got a, it's not published yet, but I got a preview of it. It has some amazing content. It's really accelerated my thinking about nuclear and how to decriminalize it. So I want to bring him on so we can get that thinking out. Um, as quickly as possible. And there's so much going on. Um, I've been a little bit lax at reporting what I've been going on. My, my newsletter is out of date and that kind of thing. You make sure to keep up with my stuff. If you just go to um, energytalkingpoints.com, sign up for the mailing list or the same mailing list you can sign up for it at alexepstein.substack.com. Uh, I'm still posting uh, there. Uh, there's one thing I want to make sure to update everyone on, which I know people are going to be sad about. And I believe me, I'm, I'm sad about it, but it's, it's only limited, which is now the book instead of coming out on April 22nd. So the book that is, is, is fossil future is coming out. I believe it is May 23rd. Let me just make sure. So I don't give you a false date. It is, it's always a Tuesday. So it is, let's see, um, May 24th. So it's coming out. Uh, a month later, I don't want to get into all the specifics. I'll just say like the, the, the basic thing that was involved is if it had come out on April 22nd, uh, there were a bunch of issues with uh, the quality in terms of a number of errors that I just thought was completely unacceptable. And so I did move to heaven and earth to get a version of the book that is as close as humanly possible to error-free. And I'm so proud uh, of the final version. And I'm glad that I took the efforts I did to get it as good as possible. I appreciate everyone's patience. I know you don't like hearing uh, like, oh, it's delayed again, it's delayed again. And believe me, I don't like that at all, but the audiobook has been recorded. So like I recorded it, uh, went great. I've corrected all the errors, you know, they're getting, it's like, it's all gonna be good. And, you know, starting in May, you're, you're gonna have, I mean, it's, I don't wanna be too immodest, but like, you're gonna have a resource on energy, like nothing you've ever, read before in terms of how clear, how clear this makes what our energy future should be um, and the level of detail. And like, it's, I think it's really gonna, um, it's really gonna blow you away. Also, one thing related to that is we, I haven't promoted it too much because we've been working on the publication date, but Young America's Foundation and I are working on something where we're giving away at least thousands of copies of books to students and teachers as well as uh, students and educators at the high school and university level. So if you go to yaf.org, yaf.org slash fossil future, um, or refer anyone who's a student or educator there, they can get a totally free copy of fossil future. They just need to enter in their info and then explain why they want one. And if they give it any decent reason, and they're you know near the top of the queue, then we will get one to them. So thanks a lot for YAF for helping with that. One huge thing is unlike my other projects, because it's run it because it's run by Young America's Foundation. This is a to, this is a nonprofit. All your contributions can be tax deductible. If you're interested in contributing to it, if you go to that website, there's contribution um, info to it. I think we're just having it where you can send them a check and you just have to make sure it's, it's clear it's the fossil future project. But for now, I don't want, uh, if you're interested in that, that's great. But I really want to make sure that if you know any students or educators, you tell them about that. Cause I want this, you know, I'm hoping we can scale it to tens of thousands, um, of them. So that was a, a final thing I wanted to mention. And then let me see if there's anything else. Uh, well, my usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. And if you want to support 
our research and development and promotional efforts. Got a lot of cool new stuff in the pipeline. Uh, you can become an accelerator or continue to be an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. So good to be back. Uh, have a new power hour. Looking forward to another one soon with Robert Zubrin. Uh, so until the next one, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.